You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Dendrochronology is the study of tree rings, which can tell us a lot about a tree's health, its history and even external factors such as the way the climate's changed throughout its lifetime. In this episode, Joe Buck, a dendrochronologist from Texas and creator of the brilliant website DendroHub, explains some of the basic principles behind dendrochronology and how somebody like you can incorporate it into your skill set to differentiate yourself in the job market. G'day Joe, welcome to the show mate. Thanks Daniel, thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun man. Uh, I just want to say, can you please forgive me if I accidentally say dendrologist instead of dendrochronologist? Because I have a bit of a habit of saying dendrologist. <laughs> it's not just you. It's, that's that's a very common thing. Yeah. So I, I forgive you in advance. Cool. As I already have forgiven you for doing it yeah. in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the difference between a dendrologist and a dendrochronologist? Yeah. So it's that chrono part, obviously. And um, so that's dealing with time. So dendro and ologist, that's the study of trees, basically. And that can be kind of varied. Um, and I don't want to, you know, if I say too much, I'll be stepping on the dendrologist's toes and, and making them angry. And, and I have too many <laughs> dendrologist friends. I don't want to do that. And uh, but the dendrochronologist is really just focused mostly on the tree rings. Um, so internal wood anatomy. Um, dendrologist helps you out with like tree ID, um, tree biology, and it can be very broad. Whereas dendrochronologists, they may know certain things and aspects about all those things. Cause of course our training is very, you know, cross-functional. Um, but mostly it's all about the study of tree rings and what the tree rings can tell us. Fantastic. So under what circumstances would somebody engage the help of a professional dendrochronologist? Like who's your typical customer? Yeah, so I'm a bit unique in the sense that I'm a consulting dendrochronologist and there's not too many of us, at least um, compared to your typical dendrochronologist. Um, so for me personally, a lot of my clients are um, like kind of nature groups, uh, maybe like a nature preserve or a conservation um, group could be uh, could be a single landowner. Um, sometimes, you know, there's a land manager or landowner who uh, maybe they have a historic or potentially historic like heritage tree on their site. And so they're saying, hey, you know, the kind of the local legend is that this tree was here at the signing of such and such document or some, you know, side of some important governmental declaration or, you know, things like that. And so it could be kind of that one-off date, this particular tree. And uh, so that might be the case or what is most often the case would be more um, along the lines of, is this an old growth forest um, or what can this forest tell us about past climate? Um or, or uh, past land use compared to kind of uh, the way the land is used today. So th those would be situations where a dendrochronologist um, would be implored, you know, to, to do their work. Um, a lot of it, though, is mostly gears toward, towards uh, research. And uh, so that's where, you know, the university system is such a big um, component of the dendrochronologist training and, and employment. Mm. So people, are, they're obviously contracting you to help them figure out information about the, the tree and the, the environment around the tree. But can you tell us, like, give us a bit of an insight into what can a tree's rings actually tell us? Yeah, so quite a bit. And this is, I mean, it's, it's the, that's the bread and butter and the cool part about, you know, the dendrochronology itself is uh, all the information, you know, trees are basically storytellers and they're story keepers actually, I guess is, is more would be the appropriate mm. analogy, whereas the dendrochronologist is the teller of those stories. So we have to kind of translate um, what the rings are, are holding, you know, what, what stories uh, can they reveal about past and uh, present conditions. So, um, you know, anything could be, oh, there's just so much. It's hard, it's hard to ever like you know, know exactly <laughs> where to start. So uh, there are some uh, researchers who can use tree rings to tell about previous um, 
outbreaks of, uh, you know, insect attack, maybe they're bark beetles or um, cicadas or, you know, some, some sort of, you know, insect that feeds on the tree um, that can be picked up in the tree rings and then translated. Um, a lot of uh, times the story is about climate. And so we can basically do a, a, a climate reconstruction past climate and and by climate i'm i'm talking about you know weather patterns such as um the amount of precipitation uh it could be hot and cold so it could be a temperature thing um it a lot of times you know drought is a is a really big factor uh or you know fluvials you know these kinds of of weather events so the tree rings you know basically pick that up and in a nutshell it's just about wide rings and narrow rings so uh, a period of really good growth will give you really wide tree rings and um, not so good growth is, you know, going to be picked up as narrow rings. So, uh, you know, yeah, there's so many factors. And so a big part of what we have to do as dendrochronologists is um, it, it, it really comes down to site selection. So uh, it, you can't exactly just kind of throw a dart at the the world map and say, oh, yeah, we can do this anywhere <laughs> because it depends. So, uh, for instance, the University of Arizona, um, that's kind of where dendrochronology got its um, its beginnings uh, as a science. And that's because it worked out really, really well because it's the arid southwest of the United States. So very, very dry um, across, you know, most of the state itself. Um, and so it's a great place. The limiting factor there is water. So limiting factor is a big thing with dendrochronology. Um, when a tree is starved for some resource, whether it's nutrition, uh, through like minerals, or it may be, you know, water in the case, you know, what I was just saying, uh, going to a really dry place is a, is the perfect place to find out when a tree has experienced, you know, great periods of, of water and then drought. Um, so that's the limiting factor there. Oftentimes we go to, um, in fact, some of the work in Australia has done, uh, looking around like tree line areas. I think in Victoria, you know, like the snowy mountains and things like that, that would be a case where you could do that. Um, and I may be speaking out of turn. I may be not even be the right, right factor for Victoria, but, um, you know, that would be something that you look at, um, maybe more temperature, um, being or altitude being the limiting factor. So, uh, those things can kind of tell you past climate in terms of hot and cold. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So I guess every year the tree is going to put on a ring because the growth in spring and the growth in autumn or winter is a very different thing. So I guess in spring, if we've got a lot of rain, we've got a lot of growth in one year, it's going to be a big ring, like you said, and then through winter, it's going to be smaller. So we're going to be able to see the contrast between different years. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, you do. You do. And that, that's a great point, too, is, you know, like not not every place, you know, um, now we have to, we have actually there's been a lot of, lot more research done in the past uh, decade, really two or three decades, but um, in the tropics. So previously, the wis- the conventional wisdom was uh, trees in the tropics don't put on annual rings. Um, oh. Turns out that while that's <laughs> the case for a lot of species, uh, turns out there are actually quite a few species um, in certain areas in the tropics that do put on annual rings and season have seasonality. Um, sometimes it may be more of a monsoon um, type season versus kind of your typical, you know, winter, autumn, you know, uh, spring, summer kind of deal. But yeah, that's, that's basically it is in the spring. Um, generally speaking, anyways, at least where I'm at in the spring, we get, you know, periods of uh, lots of rain, which, means the tree has to have really large vessels to be able to transport that rain um, up through the leaves as the le- as leaf out occurs. So it's, it's real, it's synchronous to leaf, you know, the leaves coming out. That's when the tree starts to uh, enlarge its vessels to be able to transport the water. And then in the summer, as it kind of gets hotter, drier, uh, the, the leaves are not, uh, there's evapotranspiration slows down. Um, in the sense of there's not so much water available anymore. So the vessels shrink back down. Um, and so that's how you get those alternating patterns that we can pick up and uh, when we're measuring tree rings. 
I see. So we you kind of touched on a little bit about like what we can see in terms of like the tree's health, right? So, you know, we can mm-hmm. see a, a good year for growth and a bad year for growth. And you also mentioned the bark beetles, but I guess mm-hmm. we can probably tell a lot about the tree's history in terms of pests and diseases just beyond that too, right? Yeah, no, you absolutely could. I This is kind of one of those like the sky's the limit kind of deals in my mind. Um, basically, it just comes down to, again, like back to that site selection is what is what what exactly is possible to test or what exactly it is. It, it, it basically like if somebody has kind of this, this thought or this hypothesis, like, yeah, like go for it. Cause it could be. And I think this is one of those scenarios where, yeah, you could have a, a certain type of pest or um, it could be, this actually is done quite a bit in uh, like silviculture. And uh, you know, a lot of times people will go around or the forester the silviculturist, whoever is employed at these kind of more plantation style tree farms. And uh, they'll maybe core just the, the outer, you know, couple of inches or a few centimeters um, to see what the, the recent growth trends have been. And that will enlighten them to say, Oh, you know, this tree is actually starved for nutrients or we need to thin some of these so that these trees can grow, you know, faster or, you know, they can basically use the tree rings to be a guide as to the tree's health. And uh, yeah, because a lot of times you, I mean, you know how this is, like you look at a tree and you may think it's healthy and then the next season it doesn't look so good or the next year it looks diseased all of a sudden. But if we are vigilant, um, dendrochronology and, you know, at least, you know, some factors, some parts of studying tree rings, you know, can give you insights as to tree health. Um in the recent and current you know, past. Yeah, exactly as you said, because Gary Moran brought up a term on my podcast uh, a while ago now. He said the tree pension. So it's like they hold on to nutrients and it, just because mm. they're looking happy today doesn't mean that they're not spending that pension more quickly than they're saving. Oh, I like that. Yeah, no, abs- that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's and that gets to that whole, um, yeah, there's, there's like this autocorrelation you know, of the availability of nutrients and resources of the previous year is actually what's responsible for this year's growth. And instead of, you know, just the rainfall this spring, it's actually all that rain or all that nutrition that was happening the previous years. And yeah, that's, that's great. I like I like that term. I haven't heard that. Yeah. I think it's cool. Do you think that there's like space on TV for like a like a NCIS type dendrochronology show where you're like <laughs> trying to figure out what happened to this tree or something? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent, without hesitation. <laughs> they need that show. <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah. And if anybody, you know, if there's any producers out there, like hit me up. I, I may not, you know, be the most stunning looking guy, you know, but hey, I, I can, <laughs> I can really get intense about tree rings, you know, get some smoldering looks, and yeah, yeah. Dun, dun. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what happened is, yeah, you can tell by this narrow growth. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's the best question you'll ever ask on this podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think we need that show. <laughs> so, I guess, are there any particular things that like stick out to you when you're looking at a at a at a, at a sample? Like, what what sticks out to you? Hmm. Yeah, I you know to digress just a little bit before I even start is just the beauty. Like, honestly, one of the things that I love most about working with tree rings is the fact that it's wood, you know I mean? Like the xylem cells that make up the, the ring patterns, it's wood. And, and as a person who like my, my dad was a, and is a, a great woodworker. And so I kind of grew up with that, um, that mindset of, you know, wood is beautiful and, and it is. And, um, what's so amazing is, is that, you know, when, when you get this raw, um, tree core or cross section, the, the tree cookie, and you look at it, it's like, oh man, this is, this is like, you know, what is this and how old is it going to be? What's it going to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, and these are all kind of, it's, everything's a mystery, but whenever you go through the sanding process and you polish this, um, sample to, you know, I mean, it is, it's a polish, it's, you know, firm and it's, like glass, you know, basically by the time it's polished, it's beautiful. And so these alternating light and dark rings, sometimes they're full of different colors, depending on the species. So that would, that would be the first thing I would say is just like it, it's, it's art, you know? Um, 
to me at least. But uh, I would say it it's so cool to see the different species. There's so much diversity in uh, the way just the vessels and the, you know, um, the tree, the wood anatomy, there's so much diversity and it's just really neat to see. And, uh, and it's always a surprise, you know, um, sometimes you get some really old samples and the ring widths are just, they're so, so narrow and they're so tight. And you look at it and you may say, ah, it doesn't even, sometimes they're so tight that they don't even look old. Like you can't even really tell until you get under a microscope or you scan it in on a computer or on it. Yeah. Into your computer. And it just looks blows your mind like oh my god there's you know 10 rings you know in this like teeny tiny you know like few like, like millimeter you know so yeah pretty cool stuff hmm. so that would be during a, a drought or something like that yeah exactly yeah that that would be the time that you'd see maybe like there's this you know it could just be three years but you know oftentimes you kind of get these little runs of like uh you know five to ten year period where they're just really really narrow or could be instead of a drought, could be um, stand dynamics. So it could be like a canopy closing up after mm. like a windfall event or a fire. Right. And then, you know, you get these these fast growing species grow up and have an overstory again. And so the tree that's that you're looking at now, but when it was young at that period of time, uh, no longer had an open canopy. So it slowed its growth way down and just kind of biding its time for the next tornado or the next hurricane or fire or whatever it was. Yeah. And so I guess that's the value of testing multiple trees in the same area because you might make assumptions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You have to have replication. Otherwise, uh, you know, each tree is its own. Every every mm. core represents that tree story. But it's not until you have kind of a whole site. You may have your 20 or 50 or 150 trees on a given, you know, acreage. Um, and that's whenever you're going to kind of get be able to piece like more of this ecosystem, community, landscape, you know, scale. Wonderful. So I think when, I mean, when I think of tree rings, I think about a cut tree and I'm looking at the stump and I'm counting the tree rings out from that. I mean, are we going to have to cut down these hundred thousand year old trees to get, to get to those tree rings or can we get them without harming the tree? Yeah. Great question. Um, the answer is that no, you don't, you don't have to cut down the tree to, have you know your tree ring samples um so we generally speaking um there's that that is something that could be done um generally speaking we're not and i say generally speaking <laughs> i don't know of anybody who goes out and just cuts down trees anymore <laughs> that just isn't <laughs> something that's done um but uh you can still get those cross sections you know like you would like say you know somebody's felling trees or there were trees felled and you're going like just like you would see um but but generally speaking those are taken through what we call remnant wood samples so remnant wood meaning just a a, a stump that was there from some previous fire 20 years ago or even 100 years ago there may be some stump just laying there well we can go in and we can cut that little unassuming stump that seems kind of worthless now and uh and have a collection of those and those can be used to retell you know, lots of stories about the past, you know, uh, landscape, um, when we get them in the lab, sand them up and all of that stuff. Um, but generally speaking, uh, we use a, a tool called an increment bore. It basically, when it's assembled, it's, it's, uh, essentially it's two parts. It's just the kind of a long, depending, you know, they come in different lengths for obviously different size of trees, but essentially it looks like a, the letter T, um, when you assemble it, it's just a long bit put it in the handle, lock it in, and you just tap it kind of like when you think of uh, uh, like sugar maple tapping or um, yeah, it's basically just a hand drill. And in fact, like now the technologies have improved and we do have devices where we can actually use electric drills and things like that to help core trees as well. But that's generally how it's done. And it takes some, um, there's a couple different sizes you can use, but the, the most, the most commonly used is about a five millimeter core um, out of a tree. So about the size of like a number two pencil or something like that. Right. And then you got to sand it down. That's not because it's beautiful. Do you sand mm. it down so you can see the rings, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like once you take it out, it's, you know, this round raw piece of wood, you know, core. And, uh, 
yeah, you can't really see the rings very well. Uh, when it dries out, you can see some some porous, you know, cells and, mm-hmm. and things. But um, yeah, it's not till basically you sand it down flat, um, it, you know, uh, at least like kind of the top part of it. Uh, we usually we glue it onto like a wooden block, just a mounting block, and then we sand it down to where the surface is flat. And uh, yeah, that's whenever the rings really pop out. I have wondered that because I have seen them. They're like almost a square shape. And I'm like, how would you bore out a square shape? But no, it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's the process. That makes a lot of sense. So do these increment boring techniques actually harm the tree? Or like, is there any risk involved there at all? That is a great question. And it is the number one question a dendrochronologist has always asked. Like, they're, <laughs> they're, I cannot... <laughs> I have never, I, well, I can't say I never, that is the number one question, hands down. And that the, the answer is yes, it harms the tree and no, it doesn't harm the tree. And I say that in the sense that it, it's kind of getting pedantic to say that it hurts the tree in the sense that every injury hurts the tree, right? Mm. Like, um, you know, you, you are damaging the tree because you're putting a hole in it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, like it is, but it, basically like there's so many different analogies I like to use. Uh, one is kind of like thinking of, you know, basically as, as the bark being like human skin, right? Like if, if you've got a little nick or a cut, does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts. Like a paper cut. Yeah. Like that's an injury we classify as an injury and it could get infected. But generally speaking, that paper cut is not going to cause you to lose a limb, right? It's not you're not going to die from that. Um, but technically, yeah, it's an injury. But when we're talking and we're looking at a tree's total health, that's nothing, right? Like literally, you know, putting a hole the size of your pinky in diameter into the middle of the tree, um, that that's nothing compared to say what a tree would go through just naturally given over the course of a season or a year, right? Think of every windstorm, there are large branches, whole branches that come off, right? Uh, or like here we have woodpeckers that, you know, are, are called sap suckers, which tap little bitty holes all around the tree, like every single year, you know, and they <laughs> reopen these every single year. So you've got hundreds of holes in this tree, yet the tree still goes on living hundreds of years, right? So, um, and even like, this is stuff that we do, you know, for tree care, right? Tree health. There's some times where we literally cut the branches off of a tree for the tree's health, right? <laughs> so when we compare, you know, losing say like a, um, oh, I don't know, like a, a one foot or like a 20 centimeter branch that, that falls off from an ice storm, windstorm, or, you know, whatever, or we choose to take off, right? We prune and we compare that to a, a hole we put in the tree for research purposes. Um, yeah, it's, it's really nothing, but really I think the biggest thing with this is psychological. I mean, like yeah. when we're choo- especially because a lot of times if it's like, especially if it's a particular tree, like this, we're touring this tree for a reason. And usually that reason <laughs> is because it's potentially old. And so when we make this decision to be like, yeah, I want to cut this historic tree, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like that, <laughs> you know, it's like we're deciding to injure this tree purposefully. So that elicits all these emotional responses because people love trees. Like we love, especially those like real charismatic ones um, that, that mean a lot to us. So that's the big thing. That's the, the hurdle to get over is, is not the research of tree health. Like we, we know there's several good papers um, that show there's no significant um, risk of health or mortality to a tree by coring it. And and also, I, I should probably note, too, that, you know, typically speaking, we don't take more than two cores. And almost mm. never are there more than three cores taken out of any individual tree. Um, I, I try to take one. Um, and at most, I take two. But I never take three. There's just, yeah, I just move on. There's other trees in the forest, you know. There's no reason to. So, you know, we, we mitigate the risk by limiting how many cores we take. And also, again, these are really small cores. So, yeah, mm. that's your long answer. Yes <laughs> and no, but really no. <laughs> that's the short one. 
And I guess as well, like the thing about coring the tree, I mean, I'm not a dendrochronologist, nor a dendrologist, nor an arborist. I'm a horticulturist. But my <laughs> understanding is, and I think this is correct, that we've got vascular tissue towards the outside and then mm. all the tissue on the inside is dead anyway. So it doesn't really matter how deep you're tunneling in. After you've cut through that vascular tissue on the outside towards the bark, it's all dead. Brilliant point. That's exactly right. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, and that, yeah, I failed to mention that. That that's really the big, the bigger point. There is exactly what you just said. Is that, and, and that's what's so surprising to most people that I ever visit with about trees. I mean, it was to me too. Like when I first mm. learned that about trees, you know, like, oh, the only living part of a tree you're talking about is like a, <laughs> a few millimeters. And like, it just goes, it's like a sleeve basically, or like a sock around this tree that protects it and is actually living and everything else is already dead. Like that, that's just, it's mind blowing. Yeah. It would be like if our skin was a living part of our body yeah. and everything underneath was just like dead tissue that had just accumulated over time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, so that is, that's, that's the whole reason that's, that's the physiology behind why it doesn't harm the tree. Um, is because all that you're not we're not puncturing organs or guts or you know <laughs> any any vital yeah. vital process uh, we're not interfering with yeah that's that's exactly right you answered that way better than I did <laughs> no I don't think I did but so I guess you know you've mentioned software there so it's not just you looking at the tree right so can you tell us about what different software options that are available to dendrochronologists to help you in your work yeah. Yeah, we use, um, there's, there's a, it's a small variety. There's a variety, but it, it's, it's limited to just a few makers. Um, yeah, so there's two, two main ways that you can measure tree rings. Um, you can use uh, basically like a sliding mechanical stage where in essence, it's just like a big metal, heavy metal, um, you know, microscope stage. But um, on a track where you kind of turn a knob or some are motorized and you kind of push a button, but essentially you just, this track just kind of has the sample on it as you're looking through the microscope or maybe you have a microscope has a camera. So you're just viewing it on your monitor, your computer monitor, and you go along and you click a button when the little, uh, you know, have like basically a crosshair. Um, and as it lines up on a ring boundary, you click a button and then you you turn your wheel or you you advance the 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 image and then you click it again and wow. that has taken that measurement of that ring and so you do that for the whole sample and um, that is the process of using the microscope as your tool for measuring tree rings um, and with that there's a couple different software uh, or makers of the stage itself um, Velmex is one there's um, Rintech, the company that that maybe a lot of people outside of dendrochronology would know of as well, um, a lot of arborists would, because uh, they make they make other. Um, oh gosh, what is the name of those things? I can't even think of it now. But basically, the the way they they use a drill to to check the re the resistance to see if there's any pockets of decay in a tree. So Rintech is a great company. They make a, a Lintab system, um, and there's a couple of others as well. And then on the software side, strictly software, the other method, if you're not using a microscope, is to just use image analysis. So we'll, we'll sand them up, polish the samples, and then put them on a flatbed scanner, scan them into the computer. And then we can use, there's, there's a few different ones. Um, again, Rentec makes one. Um, and then uh, Coup Recorder is another. Uh, it's, it's made in... Uh, Sweden. Um, and it's a nice affordable option. And then there's Windendro, which is kind of a bigger name. And uh, again, there's a couple of others. And a really cool advance in um, dendrochronology is kind of more of a recent advance in our technology is using um, just like a standard DSLR camera system. Um, but it's, it's basically on a kind of a sliding... Uh, motorized, oh gosh, what is it? Kind of like a track and it hovers mm -hmm. above the sample that you're, and, and it basically is just taking all these different images across the sample. And then there's, again, there's various software and some of it's kind of proprietary and some of it's open source, but the software basically is a stitching 
program to stitch all these images together. And oh my God, some of these images are just beautiful. And they're like a whole gigabyte, you know, uh, of just like a, a, you know, really thin um, or narrow sample, but it, the whole image is like a whole gigabyte of storage because they're such high quality. So those are kind of three systems that are being used right now widely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's making it easier and easier because we can make really good images um, to be able to, to see things pretty clearly, much better than what they did back in, you know, kind of the early 1900s. Totally. When you're talking about that, all I can think about is AI. Do you think AI will disrupt this industry or what do you think is going to happen there? <sighs> That's a good question. And it, I, I think it's one, I, I encourage it. I mean, I welcome it. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're all going to, you know, we may <laughs> yeah. end up bowing down to our AI overlords. <laughs> so I don't want to say anything negative about them now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to be on the record of being on their side here. <laughs> but but in seriousness, no, it, it, that's a good question. And um, I, I think there, and if, again, this is something too, like if any, uh, in, you know, uh, engineers are out there, like I, I welcome their support. Um, anybody that's a, a, you know, that's into AI or has image processing abilities, like I, I like contact me because um, I, I think we could have some really good partnerships and get some good software and AI, you know, image processing people in to solution this. Um, the issue is it's always, and I say always, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's an art as well as science in the sense that yeah. tree rings can produce micro rings or, um, which could be like false rings. Um, they can produce, uh, well, they can not produce a ring when maybe when, it, even though a season has changed because of just a, a lack of nutrients and water, and so you may have what we call a locally absent uh, year where there is no ring, where there should be one. And so if you have AI, obviously it's not going to pick that up. You know, like mm -hmm. you, you can't pick up what's not there. Um, and also there, there are lots of anomalies in a tree, right? Like you may hit some hollow pocket and then it picks right back up. And that's very, very difficult to interpret without a human on the other side, you know? And so mm. I think there are some species that lend themselves really well to, um, kind of auto processing, um, auto measuring. Um, a lot of pines do that real well because they have really nice distinct ring boundaries, but, um, even them, you know, they, the issue with pines is that they're, they're really easy to see the ring boundaries, but they're also more prone to having, um, I say pines. I mean, any, basically pines, junipers. There's there's a lot of species, um, and I'm obviously I'm speaking with my North American lens here. But uh, yeah, so there there are some that are always going to have lots of false or absent rings, and that's kind of the downfall. But and a big but here is that I think I, AI and and some image processing solutions are out there that we're not partnered with yet. So mm. I welcome it and I encourage it because I think it could be a huge, huge um, boost and, and also increase accessibility uh, for a lot of people wanting to get into it. Okay, so it's going to help us accumulate data, but we're always going to need a person there to interpret. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that actually brings us nicely to the next question. Can you tell us about what the future looks like for dendrochronology? And do you think that it's a field that you'd advise people to enter? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Enter. Uh, it, it's, it's not for everybody because the issue, and I, I kind of take issue with this, but I also understand it, um, is dendrochronology is mostly based out of universities or, or, or governmental research institutions and for, for good reason. Um, and also it doesn't necessarily have to be in all cases. Um, so I will always make the case that there is a place for consulting dendrochronologists, but it's just not something that's been developed and it's not super accessible to learn how to do it um, because it is an expertise um, and it's just not taught. There are no um, pathways to being a dendrochronologist outside of um, going through university systems. So 
Um, I learned mine in under in well, very very end of undergrad and uh, and through a master's program, um, and so that's where I got my familiarity with it. But I really didn't start really honing my skills and and getting good at it till I just did it on my own much more. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the the issue is uh, is startup cost is is pretty steep. Um, Got to have a good microscope. Uh, that's a must. You need the software is not necessarily cost prohibitive, but um, a good scanner is is pretty key. And so, you know, that that's not too bad either. Maybe a couple hundred bucks for a decent one. Um, if you want the real industrial one, it might be like 10 grand. So that can be mm. a big deal. But um, yeah, I find it basically there's no one teaching it outside of uh, universities. And the reason for that is is funding. I mean, most most projects that uh, I've had to work, I've had to scrape really and and do a lot of hustling to get jobs. And mm. uh, and actually a dendro at a conference recently, um, she's a great dendro, but, you know, she asked advice because she thought about, you know, uh, she wanted to talk to me about, you know, my thoughts on doing consulting work um, and, and work for herself. And, um, you know, the answer is it's, it's in early days, you know, like everybody can benefit from this, like local municipalities, governments, you know, being able to understand their trees better, or especially, you know, here in the States, we have a lot of trees that, um, that are historic and can, can their story can be told through tree rings. Um, they're, they're suitable for that. And so there is room for consulting dendrochronologists. Um, it's just, it hasn't so far it's been housed in university systems. So, um, which is not the most equitable or accessible. And so a lot of, a lot of my efforts are geared towards trying to help more and more people get into dendro, but also, and this is the big caveat, still maintain the quality assurance, um, um because it is a very, very technical, um, skill that requires, uh, you know, thousands of hours, you know, to really develop the um, eye that you need. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like lawn mowing where you can just go and pick up a lawnmower and then have a crack at it yourself. Yeah, yeah, in the in the sense of accessibility, absolutely. Yeah. I and, and I will also say I suck at mowing, even though I've had <laughs> thousands of hours of doing it. So that is a skill and an art form. Yeah. Definitely that's not right. taking anything away, but that's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's it's just not the most, you know, readily available or accessible thing. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to lawn mow because that's going out the window anyway with AI. So you only need to yeah. know how to whip a snip. <laughs> no way. No, yeah. Remember the uh vacuum cleaners that were like full Oh yeah. Yeah, that's in lawn mowing now. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, they can go on like slopes and stuff. Like, yeah. um, I don't know if you've ever ridden a zero turn on a, on a slope in the wet, but it's uh -huh. not fun. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. No. And I welcome that as well. Just like you, it's like, I welcome it because it just means that as horticulturists, we need to get better at our trade and learn to mm. upsell our services. We should be doing the pests and diseases and the fertilizing yeah. and the soil conditioning and all that sort of stuff. Like lawn mowing in a way is probably a thing of the past. I think, I, I think in the next 10, 15 years anyway. Yeah, no, A, I, you know, even though I'm not in the trade, like, I, that makes total sense to me. I can see that. I can absolutely get behind you on that. And also, I think that's, that's a, that's just a wonderful way to view any industry. I mean, mm. if you're not adapting, if you're not improving, like, it's, somebody's going to, right? Like, society is going to push those boundaries one way or the other. And so I think that, you know, there are some old stud, stodgy, carmudgeny, you know, dendrochronologists that, you know, still like I didn't even talk about like the the, the beginning techniques and some people still swear by it, you know, and, and it's it, it is tried and true of using paper and basically using graphing paper to draw the narrow and, and, and wide rings. Uh, I won't even go into that, but some people stick to that, you know, and which that's fine. But the facts are that's not as accessible. That's not as um, efficient in a lot of ways. And just like what you're talking about, we, it's just, okay, well, what are the next hurdles? What are the next challenges? How can mm -hmm. we provide better service? How can we make this um, like something that everyday person can access? Uh, 
you know, like before it was just about like, oh yeah, my tree's damaged, like cut this down. But now we don't do that because now we, you know, it, we're more integrated with, with tree health and urban forestry and, you know, horticulture and providing better and better types of plants. And um, so, yeah, I, I like that mindset. That's definitely, I agree with that same across any industry, but mine as well. Absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, there's no point in pretending that we're not going to be advancing. Just look in the past, how much we've advanced in the last hundred oh, years. Yeah. So. <laughs> you nah, can't stop No it. joke. No, that's right. May as well get on board. I mean, I, I don't want people to lose their jobs, but I want people yeah. to get better jobs and like, get better at their job and commit yeah. to horticulture. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Push for that society where we all have jobs, but we also get to enjoy our lives as well at the same time. Exactly <laughs> without, right, man. Without, yeah, being hunched over by the time we're, you know, 60. Yeah, and no one will sit there and tell you push mowing's an easy job. It's bloody well not. It's not an easy oh, job. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm about done. I'm glad my kids are old enough to start start helping yeah. out. <laughs> it's, oh, man, my back, my back is very grateful. Yeah, yeah exactly. So let's go back to careers again. Uh, like, mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for somebody who's listening to this thinking like, oh, okay, maybe dendrochronology is a good area to look at for my career? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, honestly, I think it's something that's not um, – this, this goes hand in hand with exactly that what we were just talking about is um, looking ahead, you know, because a lot of people who, who would have access probably to dendrochronology, like let's let's stay a little bit on the traditional path first. I would say a lot of people who kind of stumble into dendrochronology are either maybe from a, they're going about it as um, their ecologist or they're, they're training to be an ecologist or training to do forestry. And then they just so happen there's such and such professor and they took a class and they stumbled into it or they had some, you know, little, little research project or something. And uh, so speaking First, to those types of people, I would say it is an amazing skill set and tool to add to, you know, your quiver, uh, your toolbox, and you should definitely do it and um, look at it as kind of like take those side projects, do learn as much as you can about it, go take like um, some intensive workshop or, you know, find a way to get to add this to your skill set because you could be able to use it later. Now, to somebody who maybe is, you know, hearing this and thinking like, oh, wow, that's completely new to me. Um, go for it because it, it's super cool. And I would also say don't see it as, you know, there will be people kind of that will always encourage you to, um, I don't know, just continue to trod the path that was trod before, which is, oh, you got to do this and you got to get your master's and maybe your PhD. And no, you don't like you don't have to do that because you can think outside the box. Um, and again, like if you're thinking of doing dendrochronology as in academia, then go for it. Cause there are opportunities for it. If you're thinking about doing dendrochronology as like your sole career, I would urge caution because mm. basically you're going to need other skills as well. So you're going to have to think like, maybe you do want to do, um, horticulture or land, you know, land care of some sort, um, or land management. And it's, again, this is another tool that you can add. So for Mm. me, I can't make enough money just doing dendrochronology right now. So I am also a land use management consultant, um, helping people with kind of taking an ecological view of how, and how they do their land stewardship, helping with restoration, conservation projects. So see it as a skill set that you can add, um, mm. that, that could be one thing. And again, if you're going to do that, um, man, I, so something I'm working on right now, um, and maybe we can talk about it again later, but is called the Dendro hub. And, um, basically this is a, a site where, uh, people can go to get, to have really good access to, um, dendrochronology resources and educational, um, uh, opportunities, uh, and networking. And so, um, you know, that, that eventually what I hope to, and what, as we start to kind of build on that site and things and kind of expand it is we're going to make dendrochronology way more accessible and have better outreach and webinars and seminars and these kinds of things eventually 
um, to make it more accessible and something that maybe, you know, like we were just talking about it, with, you know, increasing and changing the way we see our, our jobs or our careers is, hey, this is another skill set and another tool that you can add. So a lot of urban foresters um, or arborists even, like I don't see any reason why uh, an arborist with the right amount of training um, could provide at least some parts of the dendrochronology services, right? You don't have to, they don't need to be involved in research, but they could also mm-hmm. provide ring counts. Um, and, you know, so yeah, there, there are career paths. I would, I would encourage people to see it as adding a skill. Um, and maybe one day we'll see where it develops. Maybe it could be more accessible um, as an industry itself. I want to learn more about the Dendro Hub, but just before we get there, I think what you're saying now, I don't want people to miss that. So it's like you're a landscaping business and dendrochronology is something that you use to help with tree health assessments. That's what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I can't, I wish that I could offer kind of that, um, I don't know, more targeted or, or more specific career advice with it. You know, I, and I don't know kind of some of the crossovers or the way it would be most beneficial to market or include in, you know, um, what sector exactly you're in. It probably depends on a lot of that. Mm. Um, I would say you're probably, you're going to be limited on offering it as, as like a service for your tree's health. Mm. But what I could say is it's a service you can offer to a lot of landowners and, and even like backyard tree owners. Yeah. Um, there's there's there are heaps of people who have you know oh grandpa said this tree by the barn is 200 years old right like yeah. I get that kind of stuff all the time <laughs> like oh they said that great 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 grandpa <laughs> put that planted that tree you know or or whatever and uh, you know more often than not the answer is nope it's not near as old as you thought <laughs> I hate to I hate to break your heart but at the same time like sometimes it's super super cool they're um, an amazing dendrochronologist and friend is uh, Megan Rockner, and she does the University of Louisville uh, in Kentucky. And um, she, they were, they, her, her and uh, I think some undergrads or maybe grad students, anyways, her and some students were doing a project um, on a on a city park, and they discovered some trees were 400 years old that they mm-hmm. they never would have imagined, you know. And so, yeah, like there are ways to add dendrochronology, like now. Megan's doing her job as a researcher and as a teacher or professor and all that stuff. But there was no reason that maybe like an urban forester or an arborist or someone else, it could have been anybody else that got a contract with the city to core these trees, to see how old their forests are in their urban setting. And that is what I'm talking about. Like we can establish eventually, like I, I have, grand aspirations, which may be all an illusion. <laughs> and, and I may, I may not even be a dendrochronologist in five years. Who knows? I, but I plan to be on it for the rest of my life. Um, and what I'd love to see is like, this is a, this, some of the, the issues that we're tackling with dendrochronology. And I say we as a collective, because I I'm doing very little research to add to, um, to what a lot of the people are doing globally. Um, the global dendro community, but like, if we can see it that way, if we can really see this as a global dendro community, then that creates a lot more spaces for, you know, your everyday person who has their everyday job or their everyday business or consulting, um, or these companies. Yeah. Include it. Like, you know, reach out to me, I'll help you get started. You know, let's include these kinds of services and then we can then outsource all this, all of our data that we get, right? Like, so to, to an arborist, somebody that's wanting to get into this, you may want to core a tree so that you can tell your client how old their tree is. And that's it. That's where it stops for you. And that's a service. Maybe it's 150 bucks. Maybe it's 250, whatever your price is, right? And you just provide that service. But then the data doesn't have to stop there. That data can then be shipped to a university, could be compiled into a collection, and we could really, really, really expand and make this a huge global thing where, you know, one day we're getting more and more people doing this and it's contributing to our knowledge and understanding of the ecosystems and the, you know, natural history of the trees around us. So that that's kind of like, uh, 
that's my big vision. And I think mm-hmm. that um, by only by increasing accessibility, are we going to get that? And I bet that there are a lot of barriers in the way from people who are thinking like, oh, we don't want untrained people attacking our trees yeah. with a big drill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I am a hundred percent in that camp, you know, like mm. I don't want it either. Like you, you do have to get, and I, you know, it's got to be tempered with, with yeah. exactly that sentiment that you just provided is, yeah, like you don't want just anybody and everybody doing it because you will get bad apples. Like mm. there's no doubt about it. There's, there's bad apples and probably in that are well-trained endocrinologists that, that mm. are doing some unethical things, or maybe they just weren't trained properly. But um, by and large, that's been managed because it's been such a, it's been honed as such a craft and such a um, apprentice based, mm. you know, skill that you learn in your lab by your mentor, by your advisor. And so some way, I think before this could be kind of unleashed, it would need some sort of a accredited, you know, accredited um, system, you know, and some governing branch, you know, it, yeah, you got to have some regulation, right? You got to have something to assure the quality and, and the, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think it'd be nice to have something like that in horticulture, just because, you mm-hmm. know, I don't like seeing the grass mown badly. You know, I don't, I don't yeah. like seeing bushes pruned incorrectly, but the thing about trees is that they live a lot longer. So it's kind of higher stakes. Whereas in, with turf, yeah. it'll grow back. Should be right. But with the tree, that's <laughs> yeah. not going to grow back, <laughs> depending on the type of tree. I mean, we've got mallees here. You can cut them to the ground and they'll grow back again, but most trees aren't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and th- that's a great point is uh, there, there may be less wiggle room for getting a tree done wrong than there is for, you know, some monocot, some grass, you know, it's just going to spring right back or you might have to add some amendments and it come back or whatever, right? Yeah, totally. great point. So I wanted to ask you, you kind of touched on it before, but can you tell us about what are the different sections on the Dendro Hub website? Yeah, so there are, um, basically it's it's divided in a way that I think is pretty, you know, um, user-friendly and self-explanatory. Um, eventually we can kind of work on a redesign, but uh, so far it's been kind of a solo project. And as it is, I think it works... Um, really well and it's, it's pretty intuitive. So there are, uh, there's an area there for um, educational materials. So for, I'm kind of maybe starting at the back end of things, but um, for somebody who wants to teach or do outreach, um, maybe it's a school teacher um, or maybe it's uh, for homeschool education or supplemental education. Uh, there's a section under, oh God, it's been too long since I looked at it myself, <laughs> but somewhere in there, I think it's like resources. There's a tab where you can, you can find all of that information. Um, so it could be on that end of things, just kind of the outreach and the science communication side, um, all the way to the very, very practical and uh, tutorial based um, resources. So um, how to core a tree, how to use an increment borer, um, or then there's also where do you get an increment borer? And so um, what the site has right now, admittedly, is um, it has a kind of Eurocentric, um, North American centric lens, um, simply because, hey, I'm, this is where <laughs> I live and that's where I know to buy products. But as we continue to build and to get more volunteers in, um, it's eventually going to have regionally specific, um, at least country specific uh, at a minimum. You know, when you get it, get it to that level, that way somebody living in Australia or New Zealand knows exactly where they need to go to be able to purchase these supplies. Um, you know, who is it that sells a Rentec, you know, uh, branded Lintab, you know, measuring systems? Well, if you don't know, here's the link, right, in your country. Do you get affiliate payments for that just quickly? No, I don't actually. So, um, oh God, I wish I could. Yeah, you should. You should sell them. Yeah, no, yeah. So we got something really big in the work for the Dendro Hub. Like, honestly, I'm, I'm just, I'm so stoked and like just constantly excited. And it's really, really, I think you, you know, from just, you know, like you just know, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 oh God, I just, I've got so much pent up energy about the Dendro Hub because it, it's going places. And yep. so um, we are the, Den- I say we are. The Dendro Hub is uh, going to be affiliated with um, at least one of 
uh, the, the big um, dendrochronology uh, associations. And I oh, can't be too specific yet until mm-hmm. it kind of gets announced. <laughs> but I think most people listening that are in dendrochronology kind of, you know, have, have some assumptions here and that's okay. But uh, eventually it's, it's uh, pretty soon it's going to be kind of owned or affiliated with that association. So um, yeah, like it, it was kind of difficult for me uh, to, to say, okay, is this going to be a tool of personal gain? Is this going to be a tool of, you know, like, you know, how, how do I need to structure this and, and how is it sustainable? Cause yeah, I mean like it's a labor of love right now. Um, mm-hmm. Only started working on it in February, launched it at the end of April and just everything I just poured into it. I was just on, you know, kind of the, the, the last bit of bandwidth I'd had at the end of the day kind of deal mm-hmm. plugging away at it, but it, it's become too big and it's and it, and it needs to become even bigger. Mm-hmm. So that means it, it ultimately what, the, what ended up happening is, um, the right way and the right thing that this always needed to be is everyone's site. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't, uh, this is not Joe Buck's, um, Dendro hub. Um, this is the, the global Dendro communities, Dendro hub. And so it's, it's for everybody and it's not for my game. Um, and it's done plenty for me already, you know, for me, like I've, I've, a, it's freed up a lot of bandwidth for me in some sense because I always had people contact me like, hey, how do I get through this? How do I get started? Or how do you measure this? Um, so it's helpful in that sense. But uh, God, it's it's just been, it's been really cool to be able to uh, know that people are gaining access um, and there, it's going to be a tool and instrument um, to increase equity across the board. And, uh, you know, especially in the global South and, um, uh, kind of maybe, you know, just underprivileged communities as well, where grants, maybe like regional universities where they're not the big giant research institutions, um, and they don't have access to NSF grants and, you know, the big, you know, big government funded projects and, and money. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a tool and a force for good. And so, with that in that spirit, um, basically any partnerships or any affiliates and that kind of stuff, um, I encourage you to like, you can already, you can already donate, um, and to the Dendro hub, uh, it is, it is not a not-for-profit. So I do want to be clear on that right now. It is not. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually the, all the proceeds that go to the Dendro hub are actually going to flow into um, and support the work that this uh, nonprofit does do. And so, um, yeah, so it should, you know, by design, bring in more money um, and more notoriety for and partnerships and product sales, frankly, for anybody that does support it, you know, um, yeah. we'll, we'll get it there. And, uh, but it, it's a brilliant, you know, way to do outreach and increase accessibility and, and, uh, and, and then just like, you know, general science education for the public as well. Hmm. Yeah. I, I hope you do get something out of it because like you put, I can just see how much bloody effort you put on it. And like you say, I know exactly <laughs> what it's like to, to use the last of your bandwidth at the end of the day, after a long, hard day of I don't know, chopping down trees or whatever you do as a dendrologist. Just hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you thanks for that. I appreciate it. And I definitely know you do. Yeah. You've you've had your own labor of love. Um, but I oh yeah, I was checking out Hort People. Hortpeople.com or is it Hort People? Yeah, thanks for yeah. the plug. Yeah. Oh god, it's 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 great. It's clean, it's nice, uh, it's gonna be it's it's brilliant, and I'm so glad you did it. Um oh, they, you know, job job sites can be done so poorly, but not yours. And I'm, I'm glad to see it. And I know it's, it's in beta right now, right? Like, it's like, Hey, let's, yeah, well, it's how everything has to start. And the Dendro hub is in a lot of ways that in beta as well. I just Mm -hmm. don't state it like I probably should. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just for the record, this is the 26th of August today. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, I'm definitely, um, Definitely want to help, you know, promote it as well, because, uh, yeah, we, it's needed. It's, it's really needed. I mean, in, in terms of, uh, employment, in terms of, you know, career seeking, you know, individuals, uh, God, I know what that is, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
And uh, when you're looking for jobs, you, you've got to have reliable places to find them. And God, I, I like LinkedIn. I, I like things about it, but you know, and there's other job sites and deed and monster. And boy, I think in Australia, New Zealand, you got seek, right? That's a big deal. Um, but yeah, they, they're, they're not always what they're cracked up to be. And to have an industry specific site, that's awesome. So needed. Thanks, man. Yeah. Like I, I think that they're, like you said, they're, they're great sites. I just mm-hmm. think as a job seeker in horticulture, I never could find the jobs I wanted. And, and I, I just thought about, well, what would I want? Well, I'd want to be able to scroll through different sectors and, you know, the new mm-hmm. to the industry section, if I want to jump into a new job in the industry. And, and I can tell that that, you know, I think about it a lot and I can, when I look at your website as well, I can tell that you're like me. Like, I, I don't know, I can just tell how much passion you've got into it and how you've thought yeah. about the layout of it and the user experience. Yep. And, you know, when someone comes on there for the first time, what do they see? Is it easy for them to jump to the learning section or the other sections? So kudos. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for that. Yeah. No, like, like, yeah. So somebody recognizing a, a like person there. That, what I would say too is it, what's going to be so good about it uh, that I see is that in at least to a certain degree, right? Like you, you are, you are a, a vetter of these, of these jobs or companies, right? So there, I know that that's something that just ought to be a crime is people like posting job adverts without, without, you know, salary yeah. or any notion of, of exactly what the job really is going to entail. <laughs> and I know you can't, I, I, I know there is no way absolutely to be able to, to vouch for a company. And that's not the point, but to be able to say, Hey, like this is about our industry and about making it better. Mm. And we're going to do that by having some, you know, some, some nice rules here. And, and that's so cool is to just know, you can weed out, you know, a lot of the, well, a lot of the weeds, right? Like yeah. there's a lot of stuff on LinkedIn when I look for jobs and, and stuff and have in the past, like there's a lot of things that I think, oh yeah, maybe this is good. And then you click on it and you're like, no, it's garbage. It doesn't yeah, apply to yeah. me, right? Yeah. And so to know that you're getting, you know, um, to know exactly what you're going to that site for is, you know, port type jobs. And that's great to know. Yep. There's also, I won't, this, we're talking about dendrology dendrochronology today hey, nice nice <laughs> no but um yeah there's there will be a report function coming soon too so if someone's doing the wrong thing i want people to report them so we can get rid nice of them. i've got the terms yeah. and conditions up there it's just about being um you know you can't do anything unethical illegal or you know um defamatory you can't falsely misrepresent things you can't say this is the salary when you get to the interview and someone says well no that's not the salary they actually offered you know, so I want people to report yeah. people who are doing the wrong thing. And it's also against, um, not just against employers too. Like there are going to be candidates on there who are going to run amok and, and do the mm-hmm. wrong thing. I want them to get reported as well. Yeah. No, that's great. That's, I like to hear that. That's fantastic. So Joe, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask one question. What else would you like the listeners to know about? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be on topic. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, okay. So this is kind of on topic, kind of not. And this is kind of the plug that at the end of any episode I'm ever on is, is I think is one of the most valuable and important things um, as members of society, um, especially as privileged members of society, like I am as a, you know, white 30 something guy um, is to always acknowledge those that were here before. And in my field and dendrochronology, um, it has had a checkered past, um, like any other industry, um, mostly everybody's, you know, good upstanding. Um, but there have been bad apples that have, have just, it's about them. And, you know, like my thing is this, this is not about any one person. Um, and I, I'm kind of straying my, my original intent here, whenever I started, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, it is important to acknowledge those who, who were the, the original stewards of the land that we're on. And in, you know, my neck of the woods, um, it's been the native American, um, lots of different tribes, um, that are represented, uh, you know, I'm in the Southern great plains. And so I think that in everything that we do in dendrochronology, we need to always, always, always be putting on, that lens and, and highlighting and amplifying 
um, the Native American voices and people that were here originally. So anything that's done, if it's in tribal territory, uh, especially like where I'm from in Oklahoma, uh, which was originally uh, as part of a forced migration um, and, and a treaty that was broken by the United States, yet another one, um, that there were so many tribes there that were mis, you know, uh, just, just really, really abused, uh, frankly, but their history, um, was all over the United States and is all over the United States. And so anything and everything that we do, we need to always make sure that we're thinking of land use history through that lens and making sure that we're telling that story and that this story is not about, um, Joe Buck, you know, and that's it. Or the European colonizers, that's it. No, like this is still their land and this is still their story. And so, uh, in everything that we do, I think, you know, recognizing and making sure that the indigenous story is also told is so key and important and that we don't benefit ourselves by that story that needs to always, you know, be reciprocated, uh, or, or not reciprocated. It's just, just, it's their story and, um, any profits or anything like that needs to always be, you know, contributed to them as well. So that's kind of like, I guess my social rant as well as what I think is just important as a, as a researcher and a scientist, uh, and a, and a tradesperson as well is, um, respect those around you and always remember that you wouldn't be here without them. So that's a beautiful message to end it on. Thank you for a wonderful episode, mate. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it so much. And I appreciate everything you do and the voice that you bring and the way you facilitate these conversations. It's great. If you want to become a dendrologist or a dendrochronologist or whatever they're called, the best place to start is to Google DendroHub or check the show notes of this episode. It's an exciting field that has a lot more potential to help us grow old, healthy trees than it's currently being utilised for. I have to commend Joe for making knowledge that used to be locked up in an ivory tower accessible to the everyday person, something I'm also passionate about. There are arboricultural and urban forestry job categories on my new job board at hortpeople.com. Chuck a resume up there to give employers the chance to headhunt you for the skills that you've worked so hard to attain and select the relevant job categories that apply to you. It's completely free for job seekers.